Chapter 30 And the famous confraternity of the Rosy Cross declares even now that throughout the universe delirious prophecies circulate. In fact, the moment the ghost appeared, though Fama and Confessio proved that this was a mere invention of idle minds, it produced a hope of universal reform and generated things partly ridiculous and absurd, partly incredible. Thus upright and honest men of various countries exposed themselves to contempt and derision in order to lend open support or to reveal themselves to these brothers through the mirror of Solomon or in some other occult way. Christoph von Besseld Appendix to Tommaso Campanella von der Spanischen Monarchy 1623 The best came later, and when Amparo returned I was able to give her a foretaste of wondrous events. It's an incredible story. The manifestos appeared in an age teeming with texts of that sort. Everyone was seeking renewal, a golden century, a cocaine of the spirit. Some poured over magic texts, others labored at forges, melting metals, others sought to rule the stars, and still others invented secret alphabets and universal languages. In Prague, Rudolf II turned his court into an alchemistic laboratory invited Comenius and John Dee, the English court astrologer who had revealed all the secrets of the cosmos in the few pages of his Monas Hieroglyphica. Are you with me? To the end of time. Rudolf's physician was a man named Michael Meyer, who later wrote a book of visual and musical emblems, the Atalanta Fugians, an orgy of philosophers' eggs, dragons biting their tails, sphinxes. Nothing was more luminous than a secret cipher. Everything was the hieroglyph of something else. Think about it. Galileo was dropping stones from the Tower of Pisa, Richelieu played Monopoly with half of Europe, and in the meantime they all had their eyes peeled to read the signs of the world. Pull of gravity indeed. Something else lies beneath, or rather above all this, something quite different. Would you like to know what? Abracadabra! Torricelli invented the barometer, but the rest of them were messing around with ballets, water games, and fireworks in the Hortus Palatinus in Heidelberg. And the Thirty Years' War was about to break out. Mutter Courage must have been delighted. But even for them it wasn't all fun and games. In 1619 the Palatine Elector accepted the crown of Bohemia, probably because he was dying to rule Prague, the magic city. But the next year the Habsburgs nailed him to the White Mountain. In Prague the Protestants were slaughtered, Comenius's house and library were burned, and his wife and son were killed. He fled from court to court, harping on how great and full of hope the idea of the Rosy Cross was. Poor man, but what did you expect him to do? Console himself with the barometer? Wait a minute, give a poor girl time to think. Who wrote these manifestos? That's the whole point. We don't know. Let's try to figure it out. How about scratching my Rosy Cross? Ah! No, between the shoulder blades. Higher. To the left. Ah, there. Yes, there. Ah. Now then. There were some incredible characters in this German environment, like Simon Studian, author of Neometria, an occult treatise on the measurements of the Temple of Solomon, Heinrich Kuhnrat, who wrote Amphitheatrum Sapientiae Eternae, full of allegories, with Hebrew alphabets and Kabbalistic labyrinths that must have inspired the authors of Fama, who were probably friends of one of the countless little utopian conventicles of Christian rebirth. One popular rumor is that the author was a man named Johann Valentin Andrei. A year later he published The Chemical Wedding of Christian Rosenkreutz, but he had written that in his youth, so he must have been kicking the idea of the rosy cross around for quite some time. There were other enthusiasts, in Tübingen, 
who dreamed of the Republic of Christianopolis. Perhaps they all got together, but it sounds as if it was all in fun, a joke. They had no idea of the pandemonium they were unleashing. Andre spent the rest of his life swearing he hadn't written the manifestos, which he claimed were elusives, a ludibrium, a prank. It cost him his academic reputation. He grew angry, said that the Rosicrucians, if indeed they existed, were all impostors. But that didn't help. Once the manifestos appeared, it was as if people had been waiting for them. Learned men from all over Europe actually wrote to the Rosicrucians, and since there was no address, they sent open letters, pamphlets, printed volumes. In that same year, Meyer published Arcana Arcanissima, in which the Brethren of the Rosy Cross were not mentioned explicitly, but everyone was sure he was talking about them and that there was more to his book than met the eye. Some people boasted that they had read Fama in manuscript. It wasn't so easy to prepare a book for publication in those days, especially if it had engravings, but in 1616 Robert Flood, who wrote in England but printed in Leiden, so you have to figure in the time to ship the proofs, circulated Apologia Compendiaria Fraternitatum de Rosea Cruce Suspicionis et Infamiis Maculis Aspersam, Veritatem Quasi Fluctibus Abluens et Abstergens, to defend the brethren and free them from suspicion, from the slander that had been their reward. In other words, a debate was raging in Bohemia, Germany, England, and Holland, alive with couriers on horseback and itinerant scholars. And the Rosicrucians themselves? Deathly silence. Post centum viginti anos potebo my ass. They watched from the vacuum of their palace. I believe it was their silence that agitated everyone so much. The fact that they didn't answer was taken as proof of their existence. In 1617, Flood wrote Tractatus Apologeticus Integritatem Societatis de Rosea Cruce Defendants, and somebody in a De Naturae Secretis in 1618 said that the time had come to reveal the secret of the Rosicrucians. And did they? <laughs> Anything but. They only complicated things, explaining that if you subtracted from 1618 the 188 years promised by the Rosicrucians, you got 1430 the year when the Order of the Golden Fleece, La Toison d'Or, was established. What's that got to do with anything? I don't understand the 188 years. It seems to me it should have been 120, but mystical subtractions and additions always come out the way you want. As for La Toison d'Or, it's a reference to the Argonauts, who, an unimpeachable source once told me, had some connections with the Holy Grail and therefore with the Templars. But that's not all. Flood, who seems to have been as prolific as Barbara Cartland, brought out four more books between 1617 and 1619, including Utriusque Cosmi Historia, Brief Remarks on the Universe, illustrated with roses and crosses throughout. Meyer then mustered all his courage and put out his Silentium Post Clamores, in which he claimed that the confraternity did indeed exist and was connected not only to La Toison d'Or but also to the Order of the Garter. Except that he was too lowly a person to be received into it. Imagine the reaction of the scholars of Europe. If the Rosicrucians didn't accept even Meyer, the order must have been really exclusive. So now all the Sudes bent over backward to get in. In other words, everyone said the Rosicrucians existed, though no one admitted having actually seen them. Everyone wrote as if trying to set up a meeting or wheedle an audience, but no one had the courage to say, I'm one, and some, maybe only because they had never been approached, said the order didn't exist. Others said the order existed precisely because they had been approached. And not a peep out of the Rosicrucians. Quiet as mice. 
Open your mouth, you need some Amaya. Mmm, mmm, yum. M meanwhile, the Thirty Years' War began, and Johann Valentin André wrote Turis Babel, promising that the Antichrist would be defeated within the year, while one Irenius Agnostus wrote Tintinabulum Sephorum. Tintinabulum, I love it. Not the word of which is comprehensible. But then Campanella, or someone acting on his behalf, declared in Spanish and monarchy that the whole Rosy Cross business was a game of corrupt minds. And that's it. Between 1621 and 1623 they all shut up. Just like that? Just like that. They got tired of it, like the Beatles, but only in Germany. Otherwise it's the story of a toxic cloud. It shifted to France. One fine morning in 1623, Rosicrucian manifestos appeared on the walls of Paris, informing the good citizens that the deputies of the confraternity's chief college had moved to their city and were ready to accept applications. But according to another version, the manifestos came right out and said there were thirty-six invisibles scattered through the world in groups of six, and that they had the power to make their adepts invisible. Hey, the thirty-six again! What thirty-six? The ones in my Templar document. No imagination at all, these people. What next? Collective madness broke out. Some defended the Rosicrucians, others wanted to meet them, still others accused them of devil-worship, alchemy, and heresy, claiming that Ashtoreth had intervened to make them rich, powerful, capable of flying from place to place. The talk of the town, in other words. Smart, those brethren. Nothing like a Paris launching to make you fashionable. You're right. Listen to what happened next. Descartes, that's right, Descartes himself, had several years before gone looking for them in Germany, but he never found them, because, as his biographer says, they deliberately disguised themselves. By the time he got back to Paris, the manifestos had appeared, and he learned that everybody considered him a Rosicrucian. Not a good thing to be, given the atmosphere at the time. It also irritated his friend Merzen, who was already fulminating against the Rosicrucians, calling them wretches, subversives, mages, and cabalists bent on sowing perverted doctrines. So what does Descartes do? Simply appears in public as often as possible. Since everybody can undeniably see him, he must not be a Rosicrucian, because if he were, he'd be invisible. That's method for you. Of course, denying it wouldn't have worked. The way things were, if somebody came up to you and said, Hi there, I'm a Rosicrucian, that meant he wasn't. No self-respecting Rosicrucian would acknowledge it. On the contrary, he would deny it to his last breath. But you can't say that anyone who denies being a Rosicrucian is a Rosicrucian, because I say I'm not, and that doesn't make me one. Ah, but the denial itself is suspicious. No, it's not. What would a Rosicrucian do once he realized people weren't believing those who said they were, and that people suspected only those who said they weren't? He'd say he was, to make them think he wasn't. Damnation! So those who say they're Rosicrucians are lying, which means they really are. No, no, Amparo, we mustn't fall into their trap. Their spies are everywhere, even under this bed, so now they know that we know, and therefore they say they aren't. Darling, you're scaring me. Don't worry, I'm here, and I'm stupid, so when they say they aren't, I'll believe they are and unmask them at once. The Rosicrucian unmasked is harmless. You can shoo him out the window with a rolled-up newspaper. What about Allier? He wants us to think he's the Comte de Saint-Germain. Obviously, so we'll think he isn't. Therefore, he's a Rosicrucian. Or isn't he? Listen, Amparo, let's get some sleep. Oh, no, now I want to hear the rest. 
The rest is a complete mess. Everybody's a Rosicrucian. In 1627, Francis Bacon's New Atlantis was published, and readers thought he was talking about the land of the Rosicrucians, even though he never mentioned them. Poor Johann Valentin André died, still swearing up and down he wasn't a Rosicrucian, or if he said he was, he had only been kidding. But by now it was too late. The Rosicrucians were everywhere, aided by the fact that they didn't exist. Like God. Now that you mention it, let's see. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are a bunch of practical jokers who meet somewhere and decide to have a contest. They invent a character, agree on a few basic facts, and then each one's free to take it and run with it. At the end, they'll see who's done the best job. The four stories are picked up by some friends who act as critics. Matthew is fairly realistic, but insists on that messiah business too much. Mark isn't bad, just a little sloppy. Luke is elegant, no denying that. And John takes the philosophy a little too far. Actually, though, the books have an appeal. They circulate, and when the four realize what's happening, it's too late. Paul has already met Jesus on the road to Damascus. Pliny begins his investigation ordered by the worried emperor, and the legion of apocryphal writers pretends also to know plenty. Toi, apocryphe lecteur, mon semblable, mon frère. It all goes to Peter's head. He takes himself seriously. John threatens to tell the truth. Peter and Paul have him chained up on the island of Patmos. Soon the poor man is seeing things. Help, there are locusts all over my bed. Make those trumpets stop. Where's all this blood coming from? The others say he's drunk, or maybe it's arteriosclerosis. Who knows? Maybe it really happened that way. It did happen that way. You should read some Feuerbach instead of those junk books of yours. Amparo, the sun's coming up. We must be crazy. Rosy-fingered dawn gently caresses the waves. Yes, go on, it's Yemanya. Listen, she's coming. Show me your ludibria. Oh, the Tintinabulum. You are my Atalanta fugians. Oh, my Taurus Babel. I want the Arcana Arcanissima, the Golden Fleece. Père les roses comme un coquillage marin. Shh! Silentium post clamores, she said.